All right. Would the rest of you open your Bibles to Philippians? We're going to look at the end of chapter 3 in the first verse in chapter 1. We've been doing this series called uh, Joy for the World, just kind of getting a, a jump start on Advent. It's Advent for Advent, uh, just reminding us of the, the beauty of joy in the gospel. Uh, the gospel is not just a get out of eternal jail free card. It's not just sort of a, um, you know, somebody going through court and their really, really clever defense attorney finds something wrong with the proceedings, you know, and it's a mistrial and the, the person who everybody knows is guilty goes free. Jesus isn't, you know, our mistrial. Um, like, what does it mean that the gospel tells us that God not only forgives our sins, the gospel not only gives us an eternal inheritance, but the gospel guarantees to us that God enjoys us. He enjoys you. And uh, this is some of what Paul uh, uncovers for us here uh, in Philippians chapter 3. Let's stand if you're able in honor of God's Word, and I'm going to begin in verse 17 and conclude in the first verse of chapter 4. Uh, Brothers, join in imitating me and, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, teach us to stand firm in this good news that we are your beloved. We are your joy and crown because of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, please be seated. Uh, so we're going to look at, you know, Paul's relationship with the Philippians, how he counts the Philippians to be his joy and crown. But that leads us to consider, you know, how the gospel relates us to one another, basically how it relates us to God and how the Father considers the Son to be his joy and crown. And then when you're in Christ, guess what? We then become the joy and crown of the Father, of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit. So um, let's look again here at verse 17 and, uh, and then the first verse in chapter 4. Paul's saying, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And then right at the beginning of chapter 4, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Um, you know, he just constantly is uh, affirming uh, the Philippians. Uh, I don't know how it makes you feel to 
be you know praised and and valued, but um, but maybe I can I can evoke some some memories. Maybe they're not too too distant. Maybe some are even recent. But if you're really good at your job, the chances are you know you get you get some accolades. You get some some strokes at work. I don't know if there's a joy and crown of the company award where where you work, but uh, that would be fun to get. I think. Um, but yeah, if, if you're good at your job, then hopefully you're in a work environment where you're praised for that, where people value uh, you, and, and, and you're an asset uh, to the company. And, and sadly, I know some of you work in places where it's kind of the opposite. I, I get it. Not every work environment is a really positive one. Um, but maybe, maybe you can relate to, to that sense of really being valued, really being praised, uh, or let's, let's go back further. This might be a distant or a really distant uh, memory for some of you. But think back to school. Um, think back to gym class. Think back to dodgeball. And you got to break up into teams. And, you know, you've got two team captains. How did it feel to be the first person picked? None of you are raising your hands. Uh, <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> right? I mean, we all know how it felt to be the last person, well, or at least I did, how it felt to be the last person picked. That's like terrible, you know, the idea that, okay, yeah, we're going to have this Lord of the Flies moment and uh, divide the kids and, you know, but there was a first person pick kid and that boy, that girl, like felt amazing, right? Uh, prized, valued, um, and, and look, I, I, whether it's at school or, or at work, I, I hope some of you have that sense of, yeah, that, that feels good. I hope all of us have at least some sense of being praised and valued, of feeling like somebody's joy and crown at home. If you're married, Right, like this, this is top shelf stuff. This is what we want out of marriage. I want to feel like my spouse's joy and crown. Once upon a time, that was true for you. Or, or if it wasn't, it's on you for saying yes when, when you were proposed. <laughs> or it's on you for, for proposing to that girl. Like if, that, if, if there wasn't a time when you felt like his or her joy and crown, you know, then I don't know what to do. But can we get that back? Right? I mean, work on that and invest in, in one another and care for one another. And look, if you're a kid, feeling like the, the joy and crown of your parent, that's so, that feels so good, right? I mean, maybe, maybe you were that kid. I hope so. And there's grace for you if you weren't. Because through, through God, we get what, what these human relationships are just a shadow of. Isn't it surprising to you to hear Paul speak this way? We, we get accustomed uh, to thinking of Paul in a couple of different categories. Like maybe, maybe he's always been held out to us as just this just phenomenal missionary, this, this powerhouse church planter. Nothing stops him. Nothing gets in his way. He's so courageous. He's willing to suffer everything. And, and he's just, you know... Um, incredibly strong, incredibly, you know, determined, and, and we have this sense in Paul that he's just this tough guy. Or maybe you get this sense that um, he's, well, he's written half of the New Testament letters, right? And he's just this theologian extraordinaire 
that makes ivory tower academics just feel stupid in his presence. You know, just how he connects those dots. And, 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 and so we can tend to think of Paul as really, really academic, really heady. But this is a kind of example that, that is all over Paul's letters. If, if you're looking, you know, you don't have to look carefully. It's pretty evident that Paul is not only, yes, a courageous missionary and church planner. Yes, he is a brilliant theologian, but he is a passionate pastor with an open heart uh, for his flock and for, for his people, especially here for the Philippians, calling them his joy and crown. He's a deep feeler. Uh, and that, those feelings can, can go both ways. Like he doesn't hold back either talking about those who are enemies of the cross. Look at verse 18. Many of whom I have often told you and now I'll tell you with, with tears, you, you see again his passion as a pastor. They walk as, as enemies of the cross of Christ. And, and, and then he describes what that looks like in verse 19 there. Their end is destruction, like the, the choices that they consistently make don't lead to life, they lead to death. And their God is their belly. Nothing is off limits. If you have an appetite for it, sure, go for it. And they glory in their shame, using their, their bodies in, in, in ways that maybe they once found embarrassing, maybe they once felt self-conscious about. Now, no, 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 nothing to govern that, no hindrance at all. Glorying in shameful things with their mindset on earthly things. Obviously, those aren't heavenly things, um, destruction and worshiping their appetite and glorying in their shame. This sounds a lot like uh, the Roman culture. And the, the scholars and commentators have a little bit of debate about, oh, maybe it's something else. But, but, but it sounds a lot like the Roman culture. It even sounds a lot like our culture, doesn't it? Right? So we live in a culture where people are just consistently inventing new destructive ways to live, it seems. Um, and there's no suppression of people's appetites. Like people just consume and... and, and um, pursue anything that they want if it tickles their fancy, whether it's good or bad for them or for even the other person. Everybody's just taking what they want uh, without regard for, is this helpful? Is this good? Is this healthy? Is it holy? Um, and you get uh, a very, very quick scan of any social media platform and you see people doing things with their bodies that uh, you know, are shameful. But they're glorying in it. And, and they're, they're counting the likes and they're making money, you know, to just, just with shameful things. And their minds are certainly not set on heaven. So, you know, um, this is, we, we, a lot of scholars do think, Paul's describing Roman culture. This is certainly our culture. Uh, last week we were looking at the Jewish culture, those who were um, you know, mutilators of the flesh, trying to, uh, to, to please God through certain rituals and, and rules um, but we were talking even last week, and here, here it's applied again, that the flesh, like that, that part of us that seeks uh, a self-reliant life can rely on self in, in, in sense, you know, of just doing whatever it wants um, and, 
you know, whether that's rule keeping or whether that's living a completely independent life. Uh, regardless, Paul makes up this contrast between, you know, all right, there's the Roman culture, their God is their belly and their glory and their shame, and then there's got the Jewish culture and they're, you know, trying to keep the rules, but in, in, in that process, mutilating the flesh through circumcision, mutilating the gospel by adding rules uh, to it. And Paul says in verse 20, we're, ne- we're neither of those groups. Our citizenship isn't in Rome, isn't in Judaism. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So, so Paul's focus is not on this world. He's, he's got his mind in heaven. His mind specifically focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great way that Paul loves to refer to our Savior. He uses that expression over 50 times in his letters, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Paul's God is not his belly. You know, he certainly has a mind to want to please God with his body. Instead of destruction, Paul's hope is in the resurrection. And instead of glorying in what is shameful, he's, he's looking forward to having his lowly body transformed into something truly glorious, like Christ's glorious body. And so in all of Paul's thinking and all that is attractive to him and that consumes his heart and his life, uh, his, his, his orientation is heavenward. It's focused on Jesus. Jesus gets the credit. Jesus makes Paul happy. Jesus is Paul's joy. And, and this is really how joy ought to work. It's how joy is designed to work. It's how joy is designed to work in us because all joy ultimately finds its source in heaven. Joy comes from Jesus. You know, and we read other places in Scripture that talk about, you know, all good gifts are coming down from the, the Father of lights, and uh, He makes the rain to, to, to uh, fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He just blesses people indiscriminately, lavishly, prodigiously, whether or not they acknowledge Him as the, the source of those joyful things. But joy has its source in heaven. And, and ultimately, you know, what would it be like to be in a relationship with the author of everything joyful? What would a life like that be like? What, what would an eternity be like? The, the gospel is the good news that God is not only forgiving our sins, that God is not only kind of rescuing us from, you know, destruction and darkness, but that God is giving us a relationship and, and inviting us into that fellowship that he has had for an eternity that is a joyful, beautiful uh, relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no, I mean, I know we're going to get a little like theological, philosophical here, but there is no relationship that has ever been or ever will be more joyous, um, more, more full, um, more joyful than the relationship 
between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they've always existed, one God in three persons. That's, what's, that's what we understand from Scripture. I, I'm not in a position to explain that adequately to you. I can tell you the facts, but I can't tell you how that works. No, no, no theologian, no pastor with, with their salt could, could dare to do that. This is an infinite reality, not, and, and we're finite. But the truth is that the God of the universe is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and forever in the past and forever in the future, the Father says to the Son, says to the Spirit, you are my joy and my crown. And forever in the past and forever in the future, the Son would say to the Father and to the Holy Spirit, you are my joy and my crown. And forever in the past and forever in the future, the Spirit would say of the, the Father and the Son, you are my joy and my crown. And that's the good news of, of this relationship that has always existed in the Trinity. God has never been lonely. And God has never been joyless in relationship with another person. Because the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have always enjoyed one another, always considered one another one, their joy and their crown. So a couple of places to demonstrate what I'm talking about. We, we looked at this um, in Proverbs 8 a couple of weeks ago, but just a reminder, you've got this picture of creation happening and the Father and the Son working side by side. And verse 30, the Son would say, like, then I was beside him like a master workman and I was daily his delight rejoicing before him always. And then you sort of imagine that scene replicated once Jesus comes incarnate among us, 12-year-old Jesus side by side with Joseph in the workshop, I was then beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, right? Joseph rejoicing in Jesus. The Father rejoicing in the Son forever, you know, in particular at creation. And then you get the real proof. When Jesus was baptized, and Jesus comes to John the Baptist saying, you know, Scripture must be fulfilled and, and I'm going to be baptized by you. And John says, wait a minute, I'm not even, I, I don't even have a right to polish your shoes. What are you doing here? No, we, we're, we're going to do this. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and there's a voice from heaven affirming the reality of who Jesus is in this moment, how significant it is. And that voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Son brings joy to the Father. Um, John Piper wrote a book called The Pleasures of God. I mentioned it before in this series. It's a really, really helpful understanding of, of, of the fact that the, the good news that the God of this universe is a happy being. And he's inviting us into his happiness. And chapter one of that book, um, Piper does a beautiful job of showing us where is the principal source of God's happiness? Where does he find the fundamental, you know, um, where, where is his fundamental joy found? And it's in Jesus, his son. So when we say that God loves the son, this is Piper, we are talking about a love of delight and pleasure. He is well pleased with his son. His soul delights in the son. 
When he looks at the sun, he enjoys and admires and cherishes and prizes and relishes what he sees. The first great pleasure of God is his pleasure in the sun. And then Piper quotes Jonathan Edwards, um, the theologian who wrote an essay on the Trinity where Edwards says, the infinite happiness of the Father consists, the infinite happiness of the Father consists in the enjoyment of his Son. Well, good, now you have all of those theological ducks in a row. So what? The Father infinitely enjoys the Son. This is incomprehensibly good news for us. And I want you to follow what's going on here. At Jesus' baptism, the heavens open, you hear a voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son uh, in, in whom I am well pleased. And then a second time that happens, and this time on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain, he's transfigured into light. Uh, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. And Peter, James, and John hear the voice of the Father saying the same thing, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, but something else this time. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus is going to tell you how to get in on the pleasure that God has in his Son, how we can experience that, how we can receive that by being in Christ. Having, having a, an identity of being in Christ, united to Christ, means that what is true of Christ then becomes true of us. Um, and the very first verse of Philippians chapter 1, Paul begins his letter saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. It is fundamentally important that we are in Christ, united to him, because that is how you and I enter into this fellowship and this eternal relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we're united to Christ, we become a part of that circle. And we are the recipients of that mutual joy going on, right? So Paul had earlier told the Philippians, and we've looked at this verse a couple of times too, how remarkable it is that Paul could have, you know, could, could say with sincerity, right? He's, he's, he's not exaggerating. He says, God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Can you say that to your spouse? Can you say that to your kids? God is my witness, you know, hand on a Bible, how I yearn for you with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, that's, that's astounding, right? And that's, that's wonderful for the Philippians. We're reading Paul's love letter to the Philippians. I love you guys. You're my joy and my crown. And we go, that's good for the Philippians. They're having a good day, but that's, like, but that's somebody else's love letter. No, it's not. Because Paul is saying that my affection for you is the same as Jesus's. Is it the same quality? No. Is it the same quantity? No. Is it the same category? 
Yes. But it pales in comparison to the quantity and quality of God's joy for us. So if Paul is saying, you're my joy and crown, and he has all of the affection of Christ Jesus for them, what does that tell us about Jesus' affection for the Philippians? They're his joy and crown in spades. What does that tell you about Jesus' affection for us? Because now all of a sudden, it's not just the saints at Philippi. It's the saints. The saints at Tabernacle. Jesus considers us his joy and crown in spades. We are on the receiving end of that, right? Um, and, we, and sometimes we go, well, that's, that just sounds like, you know, like a Hallmark card written by Jesus or something like that. It's too good to be true. No, it's not. Because I, I, know how we, I know how I tend to feel. I think I understand in, in general how a lot of us tend to feel. And we think this is too good to be true. Uh, why would God, why would God rejoice over me? Yeah, I get it. He can forgive my sins. I get it. And, and I'm looking forward to heaven. I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to put my faith in Christ. I don't have to, you know, go to hell. I can go to heaven. I can have that eternal uh, security. But, but you're talking about God considering me his joy and his crown, and I'm, I'm too big of a mess for that. That can't be true. That he would love me and rejoice over me. Is it? Is it? Yeah. Because look, it doesn't depend on how much we've failed. It doesn't depend on whether you're beaten or broken. It, 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 God's love for us doesn't, isn't something that requires our success. It doesn't require us to, to have all these wins in our column. Instead, even though our sins are real, the cross has made peace with God. He's, he's taken away our failures. He's taken away our shame. And what remains is his pleasure in us. That's what's true. God's love and joy for you is not revoked because of your failures. It's his love and joy that's responsible for his pursuit of us in the first place. And that's why the gospel is really good news for those you know, who feel broken and beaten. And that's why it's really good news, too, for those who, you know, are successes and, you know, the, the beautiful people and the awesome, you know, have a string of wins in their column. Because, yeah, some people would wonder, well, why would God rejoice over me? And then there's other people that think, well, of course God would rejoice over me. I mean, look at this thing. Have you ever seen such a beautiful thing? You know, like they just kind of go through life thinking everything's great. But there's going to come a day. When if you're having a string of wins, you're going to get a loss. And there's going to come a day when, you know, that, that beauty's going to fade. There's going to come a day when, when reality's going to, going to, you know, bite. And that, if that day comes, that doesn't mean the end to God's joy. Because the gospel means that, you know, the good news is that the gospel's not dependent on our success or our loveliness. So one of the most amazing things about the, the parables that Jesus tells is how he's constantly just challenging our paradigms. When the prodigal son returns, uh, if you remember that story, uh, he's, he's squandered um, his inheritance. He comes back, and the father receives him with open arms, and, and they have a party. The older brother's out in the field. He's going, no, 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 this is wrong. We shouldn't be celebrating this guy. Look at what a jerk he was, and I can't believe you'd do this, uh, dad, and so on. And do you know what the dad says? Here, here's how you know, the ESV translates it. It was fitting 
It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. But I don't, I love the ESV and it's, it's far more accurate in terms of, you know, like what is God's word saying? But sometimes um, I, I like turning to other translations. And in this case, the NIV, I think, has a little bit of an edge. Because you read in the ESV and, and it says, well, it is fitting to celebrate and be glad right? You know, it kind of has that, that air to it. Listen to the NIV. We had to celebrate. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. It is right to be glad. It is righteous to celebrate. It, and, and that's the foundation of this. It, God, it's, it's the righteousness of God. It's the rightness of God that leads him to rejoice over those who come to him, who repent and return to him. Whether, you know, they're terrible, awful, you know, lives or, you know, cleaned up, you know, respectable lives, all have sinned and all need God's forgiveness and all receive his joy when, when they come home. It's right, it's fitting, it's righteous for God to rejoice over us. Listen to you know, how Galatians, in Galatians, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. In Zephaniah, God refers to the daughters of Zion, that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. Or you can look at you know, the, the sons or the daughters, or even think of it in terms of a bride and a bridegroom. In Isaiah 62, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The gospel unites us to Jesus. We are in Christ such that what is true of Jesus, that the Father considers Jesus his joy in his crown, the Spirit considers Jesus his joy in his crown, and God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit consider us all who have repented and come to him through Jesus, through that cross, his joy and his crown. If you're in Christ, there's one more thing. Christ is in you. He puts his spirit in us. That same spirit who looks at the Father, looks at the Son, and says, you're my joy and you're my crown. You're my joy and you're my crown. And that Spirit is put in us, and then what happens to us? The Spirit teaches us to say to God, you're my joy and my crown. Is God your joy and your crown? I know it, I know it isn't where it needs to be, and I know it can have fits and starts, but I hope it's growing. Is God your joy? Because His Spirit is in you if you're His. Do you yearn for God and long for him as he does for us? This is the, the essence of Christianity is becoming more and more like the Holy Spirit who is in us. Like we think of Christianity as becoming more like God. Good, well, I'll, I'll act more like God and I want to say yes to holiness and no to what's sinful. Good. And I want to be, you know, a Christian. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to believe what, what he teaches us. I want to say yes to his truth and no to his lies. Good. You know, what we do, what we think, those are all important ways to become like God, but it's also how you feel. Do you love what God loves? Do you find your joy in what God enjoys? Where is the eternal foundation of God's joy? It's in his son. 
Is he your joy and your crown? And there's one more thing. Paul says to the Philippians, you're my, you're my joy and crown because he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus says to the Philippians, you're my joy and my crown. Jesus says to Tabernacle, you're my joy and my crown. Look at one another. Look at that man, look at that woman, look at that kid. Are they your joy and crown? Is the church your joy and your crown? Are you growing in that affection for God's joy and God's crown? And I, I, of course, you know, we want to say, yeah, 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 I get it. But do you praise your church or do you complain about your church? Do you give to your church or do you take from your church? And do you pray for your church or do you kind of ignore the needs of your church? And do you serve your church or do you sort of expect to be served by your church? Like, it's, it's, it needs to be reciprocal, of course, but you know what I mean? Tabernacle is... Jesus' joy and crown. Let's pray that she is more and more our joy and crown too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us, for rejoicing over us, not just forgiving our sins, not just giving us an eternal retirement plan, but, but more than that, giving us a relationship with yourself, giving us yourself, giving us your joy, giving us your delight, giving us your pleasure. Lord, we pray that given all of the difficulties we face, given all of the struggles that we endure, given all of the painful things, real things that we're going through, we, we need more of your joy. Uh, we pray that you would help us, that you would send your spirit to, to help our hearts agree with your heart that you are our crown and joy, that we would look at one another and our families and our church family and, and realize that that these people are our crown and our joy just as they are yours. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. Give us the grace of forgiveness. Teach us to ask for forgiveness. Help us to, to, to express that forgiveness. Help us to bear one another's burdens. Help us to walk with one another and delight in one another, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.